Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire, and this is The Mam Traster Murders Part 2 The Trials. Last week's podcast looked at one of the most brutal killings in 19th century Ireland when the Joyce family were brutally attacked and butchered in their remote home in Mam Trasna on the Mayo-Galway border. This podcast follows the trials that took place in the wake of those terrible murders. While the police made a major breakthrough within days of the killing, a botched attempt at swift justice would see the story of the trials become nearly as famous as the murders themselves. On Saturday the 19th of August 1882, people across Ireland and Britain opened their newspapers to read for the first time about a place called Mam Trasna and the brutal killings that had taken place there two nights previously. While details of the murders were sketchy, it was clear something awful had happened. One of Ireland's leading newspapers, the Freeman's Journal, led the way by proclaiming it a fearful outrage. The Irish Examiner followed in a similar sensationalist tone with a headline, Fearful Agrarian Murders, while the local newspaper, the Ballinrobe Chronicle, proclaimed them a frightful murder. While people were universally shocked by such reports, the police and government officials in Dublin were undoubtedly more worried than most. It was up to them to solve this case, and the Mam Trasna murders placed them in the eye of a political storm. Even though Mam Trasna was a place few, if any of them, had ever heard of, the fallout from these murders was going to be immense for the police and the administration in Dublin. Over the previous three years, the land war, a struggle for tenants' rights, had seen thousands of protests, riots and numerous murders across Ireland. The authorities had faced huge criticism for their handling of the unrest. This had reached a crescendo a few months earlier, in May 1882, with the high-profile assassination of the Chief Secretary for Ireland, the most important British representative on the island. After this, the authorities in Dublin had come under severe pressure. Ireland was out of control, many had said. Cries for law and order echoed through the halls of power in London and the newspaper offices across Britain and Ireland. However, since that murder of the Chief Secretary, the situation had seemed to be improving. Then, Mam Trasna happened, an event even more brutal than the murder of the Chief Secretary in Dublin. As most people assumed the Mam Trasna murders were related to the land war and the general unrest across Ireland, 
The British press in particular opened up with a broadside against the authorities in Dublin. The Telegraph demanded that hundreds of constables be quartered in Mam Trasna. The writer claimed, and I quote, fines, arrests and imprisonments will do a good deal if unflinchingly applied to allay the terrible thirst for blood which seems to be spreading. The London-based Morning Post had even gone as far as to ask whether the Dublin authorities were serious about tackling crime in Ireland. This demand for swift and immediate justice had a huge influence on the investigation into the Mamtrasna murders. Far to the west in Mamtrasna, police were already flooding the area in large numbers, but they were greeted with disdain by most in the local community who shunned them and refused to talk to them. The community despised the police and feared the killers in equal measure, making this a difficult case to crack. It could easily take months. Indeed, Nine months earlier, two men, John and Joseph Huddy, had been murdered close to Mam Trasna and their case had still not been solved. However, in the Mam Trasna case, time was not something the police had with the press baying for blood. Luckily for them, they enjoyed the most extraordinary fortune. On the Saturday evening, two days after the murder, three local men came forward claiming to have witnessed the killing. Wasting no time, the police raided houses the following morning, arresting ten people based on this information. Now this was a truly remarkable development. Informing to the police, regardless of the crime, was seen as a betrayal of your community in 19th century Ireland. Informers were frequently attacked. Many didn't live very long. So, for the police to have found three voluntary informers was a major breakthrough. This would satisfy their superiors in Dublin and help get the press off their back. After this breakthrough, the police now moved fast. The three informers would undoubtedly begin to mull over the impact of their decision to come forward, something that had undoubtedly shortened their life expectancy. They could easily retract their statements. So it was on Monday evening, only four days after the murders, a magisterial inquiry to move the case forward took place in the town of Kong, about 20 kilometres from Mam Trasna. The police were looking to have the 10 men they had arrested remanded in custody, so the evidence against them was presented at this hearing. Taking place inside the walls of the police barracks in Kong, the 10 accused men now came face to face with the informers for the first time. The nature of the relationship between the informers and the accused certainly added an extra layer of drama to the affair. The three informers were not only neighbours of the accused, but in the case of some of them, they were cousins. In proceedings overlooked by two local magistrates, the three informers presented their version of events. Finally, an account of what happened on the fateful night in question emerged. I say an account because this was not the only version of what happened, as we will see. However, given this was the one accepted by the Crown prosecution, it was very important and next we will see what the informers claimed happened on the night in question. The main informer was a man called Anthony Joyce, while his brother and nephew supported him. Given the close-knit nature of Mam Trasna, he was not only first cousin to some of those he was accusing, but he was also the first cousin of John Joyce, the man who had been killed along with his family. In the proceedings in the police barracks in Kong, he began his testimony, painting an unnerving account. 
On the night of the murders, Anthony Joyce, the informer, claimed he was woken by dogs barking around midnight. Now don't forget, Mam Trasna is a remote area. There is no passing traffic, so naturally worried, Anthony got up to see what was upsetting his dogs. It was then he saw six men walking past his house, all of whom he would later be able to identify. Whatever it was about the way these men were walking, Joyce said he instinctively knew they were up to something. They looked suspicious, he said. Joyce claimed he initially thought that they might be headed to the house of his neighbour and brother, so he immediately ran to warn him. Not waiting to put on socks or shoes, he slipped out the back door of his house and reached his brother's home before the six men. However, he and his brother breathed a sigh of relief as the six passed the house. It was at this moment that Anthony Joyce took a curious course of action. He decided not to alert the police, but instead to follow the six men to see what exactly they were doing. Joined by his brother and nephew, they set out into the dark night after the six men as they continued down the road. Along the way, the six were joined by four more, making a full complement of ten men. Through the darkness on what was a moonless night, the informer, Anthony Joyce, and his two relatives followed the men until they realised exactly where they were headed, the home of John Joyce and his family. Luckily, though, the ten took a circuitous route to the house to avoid being seen, so Anthony, his brother and nephew continued along the road, arriving at the home of John Joyce just in time to hide behind a bush as the ten approached the building. According to Anthony Joyce, they gathered outside the house and he saw three of the men break down the door and enter. Crucially, he nor the other informers could identify who these people who had gone inside the Joyce house were. He claimed after these men went inside, he heard terrible screams and cries. At this point, the three informers now claimed their blood ran cold as they realised something terrible was afoot. They immediately fled the scene in fear that they would also be attacked if spotted. However, they did not go to inform the police, but instead returned home. Initially, this testimony of Anthony Joyce seemed to be utterly damning. Why would three men come forward and proffer this evidence unless it was true? It certainly was enough for the judges to remand the ten accused men in custody in Galway Jail. However, even at the outset, there were questions hanging over this version of events. The informers claim that they could identify all ten men was dubious. It was a dark, moonless night. Secondly, by their own admission, they did not know who entered the house, so they could not actually identify the killers. Finally, the informers' own actions raised certain questions. Why did they not inform the police immediately? Why had they waited a day and a half before coming forward? Nevertheless, despite these problems, the police had enough to start building a case. While they did not know who had actually carried out the murders, they had eyewitnesses that put the ten men in custody at the house on the night in question. On the day following the hearing in Kong Barracks, the ten men were put on a steamship and sailed down Loch Corrib, bringing them to Galway Jail. This journey now took the prisoners from the environment they knew intimately well to a world that was completely alien to them. In Galway, like the rest of Ireland, people spoke English, a different language from these men's native Irish. This meant most of the ten would not understand their own trials. Given their lives were on the line, this did not bode well, particularly given some of them were totally innocent. After the journey by steamship to Galway, they were brought to the city jail 
which stood on the site of modern Galway Cathedral. Meanwhile, the three men who had testified against the ten were kept in Kong barracks in protective custody. Back in the mountains of Mam Trasna and the surrounding areas, nearly twenty families had now been ripped apart by the killings. Of the Joyce family who had been attacked on that night, only two sons remained alive, but they had left Mam Trasna. The ten accused families had seen husbands and fathers taken away, some of whom would never return. Then the three men who had turned informers could not return home either, in fear of their own lives. Many in the mountainous region undoubtedly despised them for what they had done, particularly given they knew that at least some of those in Galway jail were totally innocent. For example, one of the accused men had been at a wake several miles away at the time of the murder. The resentments welling up in the community from this must have been immense. Undoubtedly, life in Mamtrasna was changed forever, but things were only going to get worse as the trials began. In Galway jail, the accused men were held in effective solitary confinement. They were all in individual cells while no communication was permitted in the exercise yard. Another hearing of the case was held on Saturday the 26th of August and for the first time since their arrest, the accused had legal representation. The case was again adjourned and was eventually heard on September the 3rd, 4th and 5th. While there was still no clear motive, the outlook deteriorated for the accused as soon as the trial opened. Their best hope was that their defence counsel could appeal to a sympathetic jury from the west of Ireland by picking holes in the prosecution case. However, after the murder of the Chief Secretary and the Under Secretary of Ireland in Dublin, the British government had introduced draconian laws called the Prevention of Crimes Act. This law allowed trials to be moved away from the area where crimes had taken place if it was feared it would not be possible to get an impartial jury. The Crown prosecutors knew only too well the jury most likely to convict these men was one selected in Dublin, so they successfully made a case that the trial should be moved to the capital as far away from Mam Trasna as possible. A Dublin jury would be far more likely to listen to the direction of the prosecutors who would be men similar to those jurors in culture and in background. They would view the men from Mam Trasna with suspicion, undoubtedly influenced by weeks of newspaper reporting on the killings. While in the 21st century we could expect a case like this to take years to come to a full hearing, in the 19th century justice was swift and about 10 weeks after the killings the trials were due to open in Dublin on November the 1st 1882. The stakes on both sides could not have been higher. On the one side the Crown prosecutors led by George Bolton were under severe pressure from the media and politicians to get a conviction and prove they were in control in Ireland. The truth of what actually had happened was not that important to them. On the other side, the accused men were literally fighting for their lives. If convicted of this heinous murder, they would hang, and things did not look good. Their defence was headed up by a Galway solicitor, Henry Concannon, but he couldn't speak Irish. Furthermore, Concannon had trouble assembling a legal team as no one wanted to touch the case or be associated with the incident. Nevertheless, in October, the ten men accused of what was increasingly becoming the crime of a century were moved to Kilmainham Jail, which lay on the outskirts of Victorian Dublin, in preparation for a trial that would be held in the city centre at Green Street Courthouse. 
trial opened amid something of a farce on November the 1st, as the men were asked to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. As the trial to decide their fate was taking place in English, most of the defendants couldn't understand what was happening and didn't even know enough English to say not guilty. It was only at this point that translators were summoned to the courthouse. But to add to this farcical situation, the interpreter used was a policeman, not exactly an impartial or neutral figure. In the end, all men entered a plea of not guilty and each were to be tried separately. The trials proper were scheduled to begin on November the 13th. While the men undoubtedly faced an uphill challenge, the Crown prosecutors had their own problems. The evidence they had was far from perfect. The three informers were willing to identify the ten men they claimed gathered at the house, but they couldn't say who had actually gone inside and carried out the killing. If the prosecution could establish this, it would almost certainly guarantee a conviction. But they needed more evidence. If they could just turn one of the accused men to testify against the others, that would surely swing the case. The prosecution therefore began to put pressure on two of the ten accused men, Anthony Philbin and another man, Tom Casey. They were offered freedom if they would testify. This worked and Anthony Philbin first broke and changed his story. Philbin had in fact been at a wake witnessed by numerous people on the night in question, but he changed his story to say that he had been present at the murders and that he could name the three men who went inside to kill the Joyce family. He signed a statement to this effect on Friday, November the 10th, three days before the trial was due to open. While the prosecutors were elated, they shortly received even more good news. Another prisoner, Tom Casey, was willing to turn against his fellow prisoners as well. However, when George Bolton, the Crown Prosecutor, visited Tom Casey in Kilmainham Jail, this proved disastrous. Tom Casey did admit that he was present on the night, but crucially, he was adamant that Anthony Philbin had not been, and furthermore, that those who had organised the killing were still free and living in Mam Trasna. This would not do. In fact, this could collapse the entire case. According to later testimonies, Bolton now made all sorts of threats against Casey, telling him how he would hang for the murder, trying to cajole the man into changing his story. It was increasingly obvious that the Crown prosecutors were more interested in convictions than the truth. Tom Casey was left to stew under his own torments and fears for the gallows over the weekend, but did not make any move to change his story. On Monday, November the 13th, 1882, the prisoners were brought to Green Street Courthouse in Dublin City Centre for the opening of the trial. When they got into the prison carriage in Kilmainham Jail, though, there were only nine prisoners, and undoubtedly the hearts of these nine men sank, as they knew what had happened. It was obvious that Anthony Philbin, who was absent, was going to testify against them. This was a disaster. Philbin would clearly say whatever he needed to, to save his life. God only knew what this would amount to. For Tom Casey, that's the other man, offered freedom in return for testimony. These events began to get the better of him. Just as the trial was about to open, he decided to change his story and said he was willing to testify and corroborate the evidence of Anthony Philbin. Both men were almost certainly now fabricating their version of events. Nevertheless, for George Bolton, he now had what he wanted. He had the three original informers who could put all ten men at the house and even more importantly, of those ten men, 
he now had two willing to identify the three men who had gone inside and killed the Joyce family. This was nearing a cast iron case and the three men who were accused of going inside the Joyce house and brutally killing them would be tried first. However, those trials didn't go quite according to plan. At this point, I'm going to take a break. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. first individual from Mam Trasna to face trial was a man called Patrick Joyce. I'm not going to go into the details of each trial but I will lay out the evidence made against Patrick Joyce as it formed the backbone of all the other trials. If you want more details on these court cases I strongly recommend getting Jarlett Waldron's book Mam Trasna, The Murders and the Mystery. I used it as one of the main sources for these podcasts. The crown case against Patrick Joyce was strong. When Anthony Philbin, the prisoner who had turned to give evidence, took the stand, he was able to give a first-hand account of how the men had gathered and travelled to the Joyce household. It's worth bearing in mind, though, that this was almost certainly fictional. He wasn't even there on the night, so he was probably schooled by the prosecution. Nevertheless, he did point out Patrick Joyce in the dock and said he was one of the men who broke the door down and entered the house. In the most damning evidence, he said that Patrick Joyce had been armed with a revolver when he had done this. He didn't give any motive, just saying that he had been cajoled into coming along and didn't really understand much about what was happening. During his testimony, he did contradict the original three informers in some details, but the defence counsel never really exploited this. However, when the second prisoner, Tom Casey, took the stand to testify, he botched his evidence. He claimed there had in fact been two more men who were not on trial at the killing, which meant now that someone was innocent or there were 12 men there on the night in question, which contradicted all the other evidence, which claimed there were only 10. One way or another, it was clear someone was lying, but again, the defence counsel never properly exploited this contradiction. For their part, the defence counsel tried to undermine the witnesses. They implied that the three original informers had substituted the names of the actual killers for men they disliked. This, however, had little effect on the jury. By the end of the trial, there was still one major problem, however. No motive had been forwarded by the prosecution. Nevertheless, the jury was sent out for their deliberation. They returned within eight minutes. They clearly did not have any reservations about the case of Patrick Joyce. They proclaimed him guilty. The reality now hit Joyce and indeed the other prisoners of what was at stake when the judge donned the black hat and ushered the fateful words. 
The sentence of this court is, and I do judge and order that you, Patrick Joyce, be taken from the bar of this court where you now stand to the place of whence you came, and that you be removed to Her Majesty's prison at Galway, and that on Friday the 15th of December next of this year of our Lord, 1882, you be taken to the common place of execution within the walls of the prison in which you shall be confined, and you shall be there and then hanged by the neck until you be dead. Patrick Joyce showed little emotion. He was taken from the dock, and almost immediately a new jury was impanelled for the trial of the second prisoner, a man called Patrick Casey. There's little need to go through the specifics of this case. It was, by and large, the same. However, the defence in this case was a disaster. When Patrick Casey's mother testified for him as an alibi, she contradicted herself. This more or less condemned her son. The jury in this trial was less efficient, taking 12 minutes to find Casey guilty compared to the 8 minutes in the previous case. The judge donned the black hat for a second time and sentenced him to death. Now he moved on to the case of the third man who the Crown prosecutors and their witnesses claimed had gone inside the house. This was Miles Joyce. Again, the overall case was much the same. Miles Joyce's alibi was his wife who was legally not allowed to testify in his defence. However, he had one aspect in his favour. He had attended the wake of the Joyce family, unlike the others, which his defence team made much of. Would a killer really attend the wake of his victim less than 24 hours after the act? The jury seemed to think this was possible, and after deliberating for six minutes, Miles Joyce was also found guilty. The judge, now used to his routine, donned the cap, and Miles was sentenced to death. In a tragic farce, Miles Joyce did not understand his fate until it was translated from English to Irish. The first three Mamtrasna trials had taken place, and three men were sentenced to death. Next, we will look at what happened to the remaining five prisoners due to stand trial, because these revealed some secrets about what exactly had happened in Mamtrasna. With three court cases complete and three death sentences handed down, this left five more Mamtrasna men to face trial, two of whom were the brothers of the condemned man, Miles Joyce. However, the Crown prosecutors were happy that they had made their point and they were now willing to settle for life imprisonment if the remaining five men would plead guilty. These were all individuals that the prosecutors claimed had been at the house but had not gone inside so had not actually carried out the murders. The first four of these men refused to plead guilty. However, the fifth and final man was willing to change his plea but only if their others did so as well. This man, a 60-year-old individual called Michael Casey, was willing to do this because he was in fact actually guilty. And it's from him we get the first evidence of what may truly have happened that night. He admitted to his solicitor that he had been present on the night in question. He said that those who had organised the killing were still at large. He also said that Miles Joyce, the last man who had been sentenced to death, had not been present. Although guilty, he resolutely refused to change his plea unless the other four men did so as well. However, the others would not plead guilty. They insisted they were innocent and did not want to admit to such a terrible crime. So it was that this 60-year-old man, Michael Casey, went forward for trial, facing the same formalities of a court hearing as the previous three men. 
The defence solicitor was now desperate to stop more men being sentenced to death and he summoned the parish priest from Galway to meet with the four remaining men in Kilmainham jail. The priest used his great influence to convince these men to change their pleas to guilty. In the courtroom, Michael Casey's trial was stopped before he could be found guilty and sentenced to death. He, along with the four others, changed their plea to guilty. The judge handed down a death sentence but did recommend that it should be commuted to life in prison. In the coming weeks, the powers that be debated what they would do. Some wanted to go ahead and hang all the mamtras and the prisoners to set an example, while others argued that clemency was needed for the five who had changed their plea to guilty. For the three men who had been convicted of entering the building, they were definitely going to hang. Back in Mamtrasna, many of the families had a 24-hour time lag in receiving the news as it came out, as they were dependent on newspapers to hear about the fate of their loved ones. However, while they were far removed from the courthouse and its decisions, they knew far more about the truth of what happened than anyone else. While the court cases had found all the men guilty, very little uncontested details had emerged. The witnesses often contradicted each other, so they couldn't really be trusted. They hadn't even agreed on exactly how many men were there on the night of the killing. In Mount Trasna, there were people who had a fair idea of what happened and knew who was lying and who wasn't. Firstly, many were well aware that the cornerstone of the prosecution was all lies. Many had seen Anthony Philbin, the first prisoner to testify against the others, at a wake at the time the murders were committed. He clearly hadn't been there and couldn't have known what happened. Furthermore, Manny also knew that one of the condemned men, Miles Joyce, was also innocent. It is a great travesty that the defence team could not find these people in Mam Trasla to testify. As Christmas approached in 1882, however, a dark cloud hung over Mam Trasla. They had seen one entire family, that of the Joyces, wiped out. Nothing remained of them save their silent house the two surviving boys having left the area. Eight men from other families in the wider region now faced a death sentence. Some may have been guilty, but many in Mam Trasna knew most were innocent. Two days before the execution was due to take place, the Crown officials finally decided on the fate of the five who had pleaded guilty. They assented to the judge's call for their execution to be commuted to a prison term. While this was good news, these men still faced 20 years in prison. Now there were just three men who were sentenced to die. However, they had been convicted of entering the house. They were vilified in the press and there was no hope of them getting a reprieve. However, the twists and turns in the story of Mam Trasna were far from over. As the executioner, William Marwood, arrived from England, the prison chaplain in Galway uncovered a startling revelation. Perhaps in confession, two of the three men facing the noose, Patrick Joyce and Patrick Casey, shed more light on what had happened and their evidence was explosive. They admitted they were there at the house when the murder took place. Crucially, both men stated that Miles Joyce, the third man facing the gallows, had not been present but was totally innocent. Furthermore, they were willing to sign testimonies to this effect. Patrick Joyce's testimony was reprinted in Jarlett Waldron's book on Mam Trasna and the text is worth recalling here. It read as follows. Her Majesty's Prison Galway, 13th of December, 1882. I, Patrick Joyce, now a prisoner in this prison, make the following statement. Miles Joyce is as innocent as the child unborn of the murder of the Joyce family. 
Seven persons were present at the time of the murder, namely myself, Michael Casey, Patrick Casey, Thomas Casey, and three now at liberty, and I don't like to mention the names. Thomas Casey used three revolvers, and it was he who did all the shooting. Two of the three, now outside, had a hammer and used it to kill out the Joyce's still not dead after receiving pistol shots. Anthony Philbin was not present and i never seen him in the neighbourhood for the last three years. The Joyce's who swore against us did not and could not have seen it on the night of the murder. He went on to claim that the motive was spite but provided no further details. There is lots of names in that letter so I'm just going to pick them apart now. Basically, according to this version of events, the two star witnesses, the prisoners who had testified, were hugely problematic. One of them, Anthony Philbin, had not been present on the night, while the other, Thomas Casey, had been responsible for three of the deaths, as he was the one with the revolvers. Furthermore, according to this letter, Anthony Joyce, the informer, had concocted his story, and he couldn't have seen what had happened. Patrick Joyce claimed that there was only seven, not ten men involved. One way or another, it was becoming obvious that whatever had happened in Mam Trasna, nearly everyone who had taken the stand in Green Street Courthouse in Dublin had lied to some degree. The Crown prosecution was in tatters. Increasingly, it seemed, whoever had organised the killings, they were still at large. This was explosive. These testimonies were taken before the Governor of Galway Prison and sent to Dublin, and they basically proved the entire trial to have been a farce. With around 48 hours to go to the executions, what would the authorities do with this evidence though? Surely Miles Joyce couldn't hang. They would have to at least call a retrial. Tune in next time to see what happens in the final podcast on the Mam Trasner murders. In that show I'm also going to sift through all the evidence trying to find out exactly what did happen on that fateful night and pose some theories as to why it occurred. I will also be returning to the story of the survivors Martin and Patsy Joyce to see what happened to them and their lives after the murders. Until next time, Sloan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.